All right, Everyday Sacred Community Seekers, welcome for part two of our Buddhism in a Nutshell. Um, how's everyone doing today? Doing well. Oh, we got Michael Boyce here, Shane as usual, and uh, today we're going to go into the Eightfold Path, kind of pick up approximately where we left off. Uh, if you haven't heard episode one, I strongly suggest you go back and, and catch it. Uh, there we kind of address the the things that lead up to the Eightfold Path. The Four Noble Truths is what we talk about, uh, along with the Marks of Existence, or also known as Universal Truths, where we discuss mm -hmm. suffering. We talk about how there is an escape to suffering, just to sum it up quickly. And that escape, the Fourth Noble Truth, leads directly to the Eightfold Path as being at least an example of how to climb out of the cycle of you know suffering and desire and being filled with needs that, that can't be met uh, mm -hmm. in you know real life so right well to sum up the four noble truths they're sort of like a pair of cause and effect relationships so if there is suffering there is a cause of suffering because and and then the relationship between the other half is because there is suffering there is its opposite there is unsuffering or freedom an from suffering an absence mm -hmm. of suffering um and because and by the same token if there's an absence of suffering there is a cause of the absence of suffering and that cause is the Eightfold Path in, in Buddhist teaching. Mm -hmm. The causes of suffering can also be illuminated similarly. Uh, the Second Noble Truth, uh, I've, I've often seen it written up as just the mirror opposite of the Eightfold Path. So a wrong version of all, of all eight of them. Yeah. Is so, sort of the causes of suffering. Yeah, and, and that's really important to keep in mind as we go over this. Understand that there, each one is meant to remedy something that that causes somebody to suffer, that causes somebody uh, in in Buddhist philosophy to be reborn into the wheel of samsara and to continue the suffering in another lifetime, uh, mm -hmm. as they have many times in the past. So mm -hmm. this is. As it's handed down, this was, you know, given to everybody out of the Buddha's Dharma, uh, out of his teachings that were left after he successful, successfully escaped the wheel. So remember, the Buddha, unlike Jesus, is not somebody that can personally come help you in that same way, because philosophically, he's escaped existence in a way. Mm -hmm. and escaped he's, the wheel. he's not a savior so much as, as a teacher of the way that he took mm -hmm. you know and and this is often referred to as his dharma his teachings um a little bit different usage if you're familiar with uh, some of the hindu ways that this is used so we're gonna break up the the eightfold paths into three different categories uh it's, it's commonly taught this way in college at least it was when i took uh, a class on buddhism and the reason we're gonna do that is because we're not gonna get too granular into these uh you know in, the, in like the theravadic tradition 
and the Zen tradition and the Mahayana tradition, the the minutia of all these things is going to be a little bit different because they've evolved for literally thousands of years. And so, you know, in one tradition, what's right speech might be slightly different than another. I mean, that's just to be expected. So we're going to, this is going to be broad strokes again, just to get through it and not confuse anybody and get you to the point where you can have an actual conversation about Buddhism with people and have a, a broad idea of the place the Buddhist is coming from. And if they mention something uh, like uh, right speech, we'll just jump right into it. You'll have an idea of what that is, at least generally speaking. Um, so the first category here is moral virtue. Um, and this kind of has to do with how you act. This has to do with treating people well, this, you know, good interactions with other human beings, uh, doing the right thing and saying the right thing. And one of the first things I want to tackle is that in Buddhism, the, the word that we translate as right is, is maybe not the best translation of that word. It's maybe not the most accurate way because the first thing that most people think is, well, what's right and wrong? That's a subjective uh, thing completely. So of course you think yours is the right way. Well, that, that's the problem with, with calling it right. But what's probably makes more sense is uh, to say like an informed choice or a wise choice. Uh, I've often heard it described as. Um, there's well, it's a, also it's it, it's also it's a noble choice if we're talking about the you know the the noble truths and the the noble eightfold path it's sort of in that sense it's yeah it's like a higher level of yeah decision elevated and elevated yeah uh, and doing it in a way where you get a more positive outcome than a harmful outcome. And these, That's how I've interpreted it. Absolutely. You know, I mean, Buddhism really comes from the idea that uh, of the karma, right? Of like everything that you say interacts with something else. It has an effect on another thing and it causes a chain of reactions that can be a good chain of reactions or a bad chain of reactions. Uh, they're, they're, it's like <laughs> they're all seeds that are planted. So right speech is about what you would think, like saying things that are generally not decisive, saying things that do not turn people against each other, not lying to people, saying what you mean, uh, speaking wisdom to people, um, potentially not saying anything if you have nothing to say. You know, it's being mindful of this, of the actual information you're conveying to people and saying that information in a way that brings harmony and mm -hmm. compassion to the things that you say rather than causing strife uh, and hurt to others um, the mm -hmm. same with right action uh, so yes these these three and it's interesting um, looking into this the eightfold paths it's not like they're often they're always broken up like this it's a good way of understanding it, mm -hmm. um, but even it's it seems like some you know often the order is completely different. The and sometimes in the translations entirely. Most of the ones I looked up, um, you know, begin with right understanding. 
So, you know, but it's not a linear path. And that's, that's the thing. Like, these are really principles, not steps on a path. It's not, you know, a 12-step program to enlightenment. It's, it's, it's a series of principles that you're supposed to adopt all of them. You don't adopt all of them all one at a time. You might focus on one at a time. But, um, and I'm sure, you know, like what I don't know much about is the different schools of thought. And some of them might focus on one more than the other, one over the other. They all interpret them differently. But it does seem like uh, this way of breaking it up, you called it moral virtue, mm -hmm. is sort of the ethics of the Eightfold Path. Your speech, action, and your livelihood, which is an interesting one. You, you mentioned it before the recording, that it's, it's how you earn your living. And I thought that was a fascinating one as well. Yeah. That, uh, in Buddhism, you know, oftentimes that'll mean like, uh, you don't earn your, your livelihood from like killing animals or mm -hmm. doing something that causes harm. Uh, mm -hmm. and you know, like I, I jokingly, I compared it to like Dick Cheney cause I think historically he's a good example of somebody who's managed to make money off every shady thing in, in our <laughs> culture. Um, I think John Stewart said that like if, if it's torture or, you know, if there's, if it's morally incorrect, then Dick Cheney somehow is making a dollar off of it. And right. I, 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 I think that's hilarious, but and sad but the idea is very solid like often you know we talk about this all the time in corporate america in the united states like making money making your livelihood off things that no moral person it seems would ever do something like that mm -hmm. you know it, taking the, out, it's blood money yeah oftentimes mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, using slavery in in other countries taking out you know life insurance policies on your employees and not letting them know and and hoping to collect if something bad yeah. happens to them just weird little things right that... and i think this is you know we're approaching this whole thing more from a philosophical viewpoint um than as than as believers in buddhism and i think this this one particularly sticks out to me at least out of this this sort of ethical section because mm -hmm. i think speech and action sort of speak for themselves um you uh, they're often described as the absence of something so the absence of gossip the absence of uh, speaking ill of people but in generally it's 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 not right speech is incorrect it's like speaking positively or um if you can't say something nice you don't say anything at all mm -hmm. um action is to do to do good and to to be charitable and and things like that we can explore it a little bit but livelihood like it just kind of begs the question and i i was just drawn into that after some of my research because i also think that that's one that's evolved and that changes it, it is a little more subjective to be honest because like you mentioned um in, in a lot of buddhist culture they don't eat meat or they frown upon the killing of animals um but there are plenty of cultures where and buddhist cultures where eating animals is all right so they've they've had to evolve that one based based on certain things but i think understanding that like an ethical career whatever that whatever that really means is a is a key part of this and it's interesting because you as as a path out of your own suffering 
when you know that your work is is causing suffering you know it it twists inside of you even if you know plenty of people obviously are not aware of this and but you can see outwardly that they're twisted like dick cheney to uh, (laughs) think of moral virtue as your output what are you putting Mm -hmm. out into the world um and you know when i was in car sales you'd see people doing saying whatever they had to to try and make the sale whether it was you know particularly true or not or if they had to do something shady or not or like fudge or cheat a little bit and then you'd hear stories about their family because you know car salesmen are horrible gossips (laughs) (laughs) and then talk about doing the same thing at home you know so how are you going to spend all day at work you know lying cheating manipulating and then go home and be like ah I am one with the universe. Yeah. I am mm-hmm. not suffering here at home. This is great. Like you're going to go home and suffer at home too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. work can definitely put you at odds with these other two, you know, moral ideas. Um, I, I worked for what I think is one of the most immoral businesses uh, you, you can join up on. And I worked for a casino for a number of years. And I remember my first day, the, the, manager above me explaining like well you know like our target audience is like a widowed 60 70 year old so you know you flash them some smiles and and like charm them up then you know your tips are going to be good like you're you're an attractive man and that'll go really well and you're like this is i feel really bad about this job already and it's like the first 15 minutes i've been hired on like as he described them as targets you know yeah and they're lonely widows and you're like this is this is not good and so i I, something to pay attention to (laughs) that's interesting it uh because it's it's predatory business yeah so maybe you might be in in the business of killing animals but you're you you don't necessarily need to be in a predatory business yeah yeah which i think is the difference between it's a a slight tangent but growing growing animals on a farm uh and slaughtering them for meat or 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 maybe buying them from a farmer that you know it's doing that versus animals that are grown in like massive indoor facilities yeah and are and are and and are just processed through their suffering to create exactly it's almost a factory (laughs) for suffering as as we know due to many documentaries and experiences just personally I've been to slaughterhouses and it's it's not a happy place. It's haunting. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to jump on to the next three. I think if we're if we're good. Yeah. Speech, um, action, and livelihood are the the moral virtue sort of fold. Yep. And for those interested, I, I didn't do this off my memory of college. I took these off of the Wikipedia page uh, as their classic divisions. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're if you're looking to get a really, like, precise... Not really precise, it's Wikipedia, let's be honest. Go to Wikipedia, you can find these, and, and the information's there. We're, we're doing it again in broad strokes, which should be enough to be useful. If you want really precise information, continue watching our video, and then go find a Buddhist and talk to the Buddhist. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, that goes for the last one and this one. So, the next path is we translated as meditation 
Uh, this consists of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Uh, if you want the Sanskrit, I, it, this is known as Samadhi. Uh, it's a it's a term probably very familiar to a lot of like Hindu practitioners and stuff. These are these are mental disciplines basically. So uh, you know they really fall under under the like disciplines of the mind and, and mental discipline in general. Uh, what we call meditation and we translate it as meditation is again it's just really inaccurate. Uh, like Shane was saying before with moral virtue, it's a translation, but. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of better ways to do it. Meditation in the West is really generally thinking a lot about one topic. That's not really what meditation is in a Buddhist perspective most of the time. Um, it's, it could be said to be the opposite, largely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, f I feel like meditation in English has started to take on more of that meaning. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, in the yeah. past, you would meditate on something. Mm -hmm. And and there was a, there are Christian forms of and Western forms of meditation, but now I feel like it's fairly firmly established, which is nice to see that happening. But it's still a mistranslation at its at its sort of linguistic core. <laughs> Absolutely, well, uh, meditation still in in our language is like a blanket term. We say it to mean one thing, but really there's a bunch of different kinds of meditations. Yeah, and they, they have filtered in, you know. it's it. I mean, because now we do think of the, like, lotus posture, blanking the mind, which, you know, I, I always love to hear. I teach meditation uh, to my pagan students, and one of the first things I like to do is the whole stand back and say, what do you think meditation is? You know, mm -hmm. and you, you get some crazy answers there. And they're like, well, I don't like meditation because I can't do it because I've tried for hours to think about nothing and I've never been able to think about nothing. And you're like, well, that's like you learned it from a cartoon <laughs> and we're going to we're going to take a different approach here. I'm not going to yeah. tell you, OK, try really hard to think about nothing because that's impossible. You're like learning that you can't do that is lesson one. You've completed <laughs> your first lesson. All right. <laughs> And so like before, you know, we've got the word right in front of all these terms. So right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Now, in my opinion, and, and how I really interpret these, a lot of them are focused on keeping an individual in kind of that now moment, keeping them focused on what's going on in front of them rather than worrying about the future or worrying about the past because the past, again, already happened. The future has not yet happened. Um, there's, there's not a lot that comes from that effort. So mindfulness meditation is, is very big in most Buddhist groups, and it's taught largely. I mean, you could probably find a million videos out there. I'm not saying they're all good, but the mindfulness meditation approach is a very much being in this now moment and thinking without judgment and taking moments as they come and even basically acquiring this like whole new a whole new way of again it's really hard to put into words but I would say that when you find yourself deeply meditating and somebody like rings a doorbell or knocks on your door 
uh, you'll find it very shocking, right? It's like jump out of your body like it's the first time you've ever heard that doorbell ring, you know, because you're really in this mental state where you're taking in your environment in a very fresh, very effective and sustained manner, if that makes sense. Yeah, you'll, you'll hear this a lot in, in quotes from monks about meditation, about hearing things like you're a child hearing it for the first time or experiencing the breath as if it's this new and joyous thing happening inside your body. Uh, oftentimes you'll focus directly on your breath. Um, but this goes beyond just, you know, what we call mindfulness meditation. This has to do with also, you know, what you're thinking about, um, not dwelling on things like anger and and previous things that have hurt you which and and doing that thing that we always do where you're like well i wish i would have said this and then in your head you go into this whole fantasy of how you should have handled a situation (laughs) and and it's not even actually helpful the next time you enter into that situation that's the funny thing it's satisfying (laughs) in its own way yeah absolutely but Um, it's the same as when you over-prepare for a conversation in advance. It never goes the way you imagine it at all. Yeah, it can become a hindrance to the conversation. Because yeah. you're trying to steer back to this idea that you have before exactly. the conversation even started. Yeah. And so well, Speaking to that, I like to think of uh, this grouping as the input. So if the moral virtue is your output we are putting into the world, this is more being conscious and aware of what's in your internal world like uh and reiki we have the precepts uh you know just for today i won't anger or resent and i won't worry or fear and if you're really putting that at the top of your mind it becomes apparent very quickly how much of your time and energy like your mental energy is spent throughout a day being angry or fearful and once Mm -hmm. that's cleared you're like oh man oh, this is great. Like, if I'm not attuning to those, like, negative things, I have so much more energy to attune to positive things. Mm -hmm. And I think monitoring that input, which affects your state, which again affects what your output can be, uh, is Mm -hmm. a part of that path. I I think think that's my interpretation of it. It's not bad. I mean... Yeah. I think this is interesting as a group. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. There is mindfulness, which is sort of self-awareness, um, uh, on a on a being aware aware of yourself, others like the the state of of that's why mindfulness has become such a a big trend. I would say is mm-hmm. it's just that that thought of like body scanning, like being aware of yourself, your your emotional state, your physical state, um, anything else, so that you can. Hopefully that it'll help you drop into meditation and then effort being like the energy you put into it. Mm-hmm. You know, your it's, it's your effort, but it's also your enthusiasm, your, your drive, um, to be good and to be improving and to be working on that. And, and it's an internal thing as, as you said, uh, Michael voice, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Boyce. Um, and then concentration is that focus. So you have the energy to drive you, you have that awareness, and then you have the focus. Uh, and when you combine that, you can kind of see how that leads to this meditative state where you're, you want to do it, you, can, you, you know where you are, 
and you're focused on it. And yeah, it, is all, it is all very internal or in focused. And, and I think that right effort, you know, for me, always implies a very deliberate action too. Like the mm-hmm. things that you do, you're doing on purpose with, with, you know, with a clear direction and not kind of half effort, half doing something just to, to do it. You know, whether it's, you know, doing your, your like morning exercises or, you know, sitting down with your family, like always be fully involved and, and be fully conscious of why mm-hmm. you're doing this, you know. And this is, this is, again, it's a small list. It's a simple list. It's, it's often, I think, overlooked in the West. And I think that this is probably one of the most, well, obviously there's only eight things here. I I can't stress enough how important I think that these things are in your daily life for Mm -hmm. living in a way that makes you more spiritually aware of what's going on. And I think that this is very relevant to to everybody. Number one, because we don't stress it as much as morality in the West. Morality is yeah. huge. I mean, it's what we're oh, used yeah. to. Something like right. this, though. But, but it's not about just being a good person. It's being a moral person, and those are yeah. definitely not the same. You and know, I think like, these, these eight categorical designations make a lot of sense for anyone. Like, how do you act how do you talk what do you do are the mm-hmm. first three um how how present are you how enthusiastic and how focused those are all you know virtues yeah you know, this could be these could be eight virtues and um i think that's an interesting you know interesting pairing as you as you sort of framed it mr boyce where it's how are you in the world how are you in yourself and then the last two which are sometimes also the first two depending on how the list is presented is uh maybe it's the thought or the wisdom but it's sort of how you look at the world your view or your understanding of things and what is behind your actions what is your intention so you're right in your so you have your right view of the world you know you're you're seeing things as they are um you're seeking i like to i would like to say mm-hmm. and then what's your intention and intention isn't everything like there's a the classic like pave the the road to hell is paved with good intentions um mm-hmm. but when combined with a better understanding of the world your intentions can inform how you do how you act uh, in the other six uh, steps. Absolutely. Um, and I like to think of this like almost like the underlying reason, like you were saying, you said earlier, like uh, with right speech, well, if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. And you can do that because you're afraid of the repercussions and dealing with those repercussions. Mm-hmm. Or you can do that because it's not kind. And those are two wildly different things, right? Yeah. It invokes two different vibrations, two different states within you. Uh, I, I think, think that's kind of what the, is at the core of this one. Absolutely. In the West, we, we have a big problem with this. If you talk to people about morality, um, 
and my own you know in we, even within my own family we have this discussion do people do the right thing because they know it's the right thing in their heart and they're driven to act from kindness or they do the right thing because number one you know they're afraid of breaking laws and going to jail and prison or number two if you're very religious they're afraid of going to hell and being punished in everlasting fire and i'm always i'm not even saying that i'm right but i have always felt that a lot of people are inherently fairly decent and they're not like a step away from murdering everybody that crossed them Mm -hmm. because they're afraid they're going to go to jail like that's not the only thing holding them back they 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 do know that it is inherently how they would not wish to be treated and and that it's going too far often even though in the moment we're i mean look at somebody driving their car and somebody cuts them off and You'll be convinced they won't oh, we murder all, the person. We all get there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but we bring ourselves back. We we get control, you know, because we know that these are also just normal things that happen. And and oftentimes they're brought on because the person didn't see you. You know, there there's there's still people and they still wouldn't probably murder your family given a chance, just like you wouldn't murder theirs. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that among these two, that, that right view... Uh, and you guys can back me up if you want or, or maybe you have a different opinion I think this is the most specifically Buddhist thing about the entire Eightfold Path where a lot of these things um, really revolve around trying to be a good person and, and think in a good way and bring harmony right view I've often heard people explain in, in super specific Buddhist ways like right view being things like knowing that there is no self deep down or knowing that desire is is wrong going back to some of those uh, original truths when you formulate your view of the world that you're you're keeping those in mind and so it mm-hmm. feels really buddhist when i hear it explained not that there's anything wrong with that but i think this is one where there are different views in different cultures and traditions and that this one definitely is a bit more more it feels like more of a wild card than some of the others um it's going to change a lot for different people um i think there's a general right view meaning you know just understanding that it's virtuous to be a good person and so you should be when given a chance um Mm -hmm. But I also think that, you know, in this one in particular, you can get really into a very Buddhist understanding where you're focused on rebirth, you're focused on samsara and nirvana and things that might not apply to every person who's really picking these up for the first time. Um, Because I do think nirvana is, of, of all the things we talk about in Buddhism, most of them hit right away and definitely resonate with like the secular buddhist communities you'll often find even within the united states secular buddhism is is huge here uh buddhism without deities Mm -hmm. and without reincarnation even often um i mean i think it makes a lot of sense just reading through this like we could all three be secular buddhists mm mm-hmm and because because we agree with some of the philosophy um, that's an interesting point about the right understanding or the right view. 
um, because it is supposed to be like truly understanding how the universe works. Yeah. And if you're coming from Buddhism, then that's the the universe works in the way that the that Buddhism describes. Yes. So you're right. Like it is. Or if you're very Christian, you know, and your view of the world is that there is a super deity outside of the universe controlling everything and we're part of that plan, right view is going to be harder to understand at first because maybe you'll think that the right view is something wildly different. Um, Right, because for you the right view is going to be that the true nature of the universe is that mm -hmm. there is an omniscient God. But, but it could still fit in with the rest of these ideas philosophically. Absolutely. And that's that's the thing. I think the Eightfold Path is interesting from a subjective view and from a secular view because you as the individual as, or as the practitioner um, have the ability to define what is an ethical life, what is a noble life. Like You may know deep down that your you know choice of livelihood is causing harm but plenty of people don't you know they we might view what they're doing as as harmful and they might view it as virtuous Mm -hmm. certainly and and but I I think that's where you have to get into the the deeper workings of Buddhism the religion that make the arguments around what why why this is the right viewpoint Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it gets really interesting. But these these four truths and the, the eight steps on this path all are still broadly applicable. They are. And I think that there's a, a whole lot of utility and really looking these over and, and trying to get a good understanding of what they are because most of them will apply no matter what your religious background is. Um, in, in most situations and and much like the the four the four noble truths you know to, just to wrap to to look at the whole system that we, we've covered in the last two episodes here I do think that the four noble truths are amazingly analytical and and as far as like religious philosophy and philosophical arguments go they're very solid it's really hard to find a lot of faults with them. Um, the, obviously, the fourth one is that, you know, this the Eightfold Path is the way out. And, but I do think that this... I, I think that the bottom line is that I do think that Buddhism is offering some people consistently a path out of their suffering. And so I think that that even... I think it's hard to argue that the Eightfold Path is not a working system. Uh, I think you mm-hmm. can look at, is it accessible to everybody? Will it work for every culture the way it does for people, say, in Tibet or China? You know, Obviously, there's different forms of Buddhism that have caught on in those different places. And so you, know, you would have to say that maybe Buddhism has to change a little bit depending on the cultural needs of the people there because... Yeah. Obviously, Tibet and China have not gotten along very well, even though many of them are Buddhist. Um, yeah. There's strife there. But I don't think anybody can deny that, that 
there are a great many people that have found a tremendous amount of spirituality, uh, spiritually fulfilling power in Buddhism. You know, no, no matter what background you're coming from. And, and although Buddhism is something I'm very interested in, I usually do not describe myself as a Buddhist because of some of the, the more finer points of the philosophy, you know, and, and I'm a pagan, it works really well for me. That certainly doesn't mean that I don't think that Buddhism is an incredibly valid path to spiritual enlightenment, whatever that is for you. Mm -hmm. I just really think spiritual enlightenment is very different for different people too. Um, and this idea of escaping samsara is powerful and I can see after a lot of study why people would want to do it. But I also think it's the hardest part for people in the West to understand because many of us aren't trying to extinguish our, our idea of like future lives and things like that. That's really hard for the Western mind. Um, and we really treat suffering, unfortunately, this is not, I think, great. I think we really treat suffering in our culture as like not having enough uh, or, you know, not living forever. <laughs> and we have science and stuff that, that's whispering in our ears like, hey, one day, if you keep working and this keeps going, you know, your brain's going to be in a computer and you will live forever. Well, and there's always the, uh, I don't even know what to term it, but the cultural like, hey, you're not suffering enough. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. should be suffering a lot more. <laughs> like, uh -huh. I poke at it, but that's a serious thing. Like, oh, you entitled millennials. Yeah. You're only working three jobs and not feeding your family. You guys need to suffer more. Like, it's a thing. <laughs> wow. It is a very concrete thing. Well, and look at how far Western religion, and I'm going to talk about Christianity mostly, because I think that that's the most distinct here. Look at how far it's come to try and explain the suffering that we experience. There is a story about a serpent and apples and women turning on men. And, and all of this, and then Christ dying on the cross for our sins, all to explain the fact that we suffer. And Buddhism, in its amazing clarity, like it has a knife cutting through the, all the crap, says, no, none of this. Like, you suffer more than you need to because you don't, deep down accept the world the way it is yeah. and that's so hard to do because there's no there's nothing to deflect it with right there's nothing to say <laughs> well no it was the devil or yeah. no you know jesus died on the cross and they let him die you know and they it's the romans or something or the jews yeah. or there's no one to scapegoat on you're just yeah. left with yourself and that's not comforting at first i think it's crushing Right. But over and it, time... And it also... It doesn't scape, scapegoat yourself either. Yeah. Because it, it just, it's just how you react to what the world gives you. And you're not a martyr anymore either. Right? Yeah. You, you're not able to say, well, I'm suffering for the benefit of, you know, or, or because of the sins of my race or even anything like that anymore. You, yeah. You're left with like, now I just need to accept reality. Easy when things are okay. It's easy to accept reality in your suffering when there's not that much of it. 
But in the yeah. harder moments of life, it's so hard to accept these things. Uh, and and that's, that's why you can see that people prepare... I see monks in a lot of ways, the Buddhist monks, as preparing their whole lives for this. Mm -hmm. uh, living in a way to escape some of these things and that are going to eventually be such an issue when say their life is ending like if you don't have a family if you don't have a job if, if you never did you've never even handled money you know there's you're not going to have if you don't have a lot of physical objects to worry about losing um, yeah you know and i think that that lifestyle it's hard to to it's hard for me to say that that wouldn't allow you to detach from your life very easily to detach from and i can see i mean even the even the west right so we all know that if you have a lot of unfinished business and you die what happens oh you become a ghost straight up right you become yeah. an angry ghost <laughs> and because because you were so unable to let go of your life that what happened your spirit physically left your body refused to go where it needed to go yeah to, and so we know in the West, and I've always known, that there's something to this, right? Like, so much unfinished business, so much attachment to your life poisons your afterlife. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. Buddhism is that different. I think, I think these things are not wildly apart, you know, even, even though Christianity is wildly different than Buddhism, right? Mm -hmm. In many ways, opposite. So there's a lot to think about here and there's a lot i mean hopefully like i said if you if you have a conversation with a buddhist you know there's a lot you can talk about and and knowing some of these things will help you come from a place to have that conversation yeah um, all right was there anything else we wanted to cover on this topic right now well, I think we can... I don't think there's anything else we want to cover on what we did. But I think we can briefly introduce, uh, you know, when we finally get to the third part. Because we're not going to jump right on this. We're going to give it some time. But yeah. uh, we're not done with Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, I, I envision us going into a little bit of the history. And then maybe focusing on how Buddhism moved and changed and ended up with the different popular paths today. We would not have the time to go into every branch and division of no. Buddhism. But we might be able to summarize. You know, We might do um, an entire video on, on Zen Buddhism and an entire video on Tibetan Buddhism and, and etc. and some of the major ones. But then we might just do, might discuss minor movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or or historic movements, you know. There's there's parts of Buddhism that aren't really practiced anymore. Yeah, there's a lot of dead branches yeah. on that tree uh, that just never grew, uh, and a lot of them changed too. Where you had multiple branches come together. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I, I meditated with some Shambhala Buddhists, and you're like, you know, what are the what are the seeds of your heritage? You know, like what traditions went into this? They got they have a list. Yeah, right? and you can tell. I mean, they've got a Zen altar. They're talking in Tibetan Buddhist concepts, 
some of them almost tantric. They're they're practicing meditation from it seems more like almost Mahayana or something. Like very interesting to to see how the traditions that have evolved today are really grown out of yeah. all these other ones. And, and Shambhala makes a lot of sense to a to a modern audience. Like people can get a lot of it's really valuable. Like you don't need to to look at an old tradition of Buddhism to help you find your own enlightenment. Like yeah. find what works. Absolutely. It's it's tends to be a very lively and evolving uh, religion, in my opinion, mm-hmm. despite all how incredibly traditional it can be and how focused it is on the original uh, founder, you might say. Right. Um, so we are likely to see, you know, we would like to make Buddhism a, an ongoing uh, topic that we return to. I think in the near future, we will do a third one in this in this sort of uh, intro to Buddhism. That'll be more historic focused. Talk a little bit about uh, Siddhartha Buddha um, and a little overview. But beyond that, you know, we will periodically re- release new deep dive topics where we will look into a, a branch of Buddhism or uh, the geography of Buddhism, which I think could be an interesting topic, like how it's mm-hmm. traveled, how it's been influenced by other geopolitical and 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 literal geography movements you know why is it that buddhism moved so much more east than west what was Mm -hmm. it that stopped buddhism from getting into the middle east and into europe when it's older than christianity yeah i think those are all very interesting topics um and for me like this has been a nice refresher since i encountered buddhism a little bit in my youth um growing up on whitby uh, I was around it, but I didn't study it extensively. I just had a lot of people who were Buddhists who gave me life lessons. And I see a lot of this, you know, coming up as we do this. So now all, for all of us, like there's a chance to do a little more deep research before the third video. And mm-hmm. there may even be another video on another topic in between now and then. Absolutely. But this has been fun. And I'd like to do something a little different before the end uh if you're finding us on youtube go ahead and leave us a comment i'm gonna ask a question here and i'd love to hear people's responses to it uh i believe in crap in crap out right you get bad input in you give bad output uh where the eightfold path is very much the opposite you put good input in you give good input out and with our current culture here you know, in America, it's crap in from the time you're born onward. Like our rates of domestic violence are ridiculous. So most children are growing up in households where, you know, the parents are beating each other and it's very violent. And they go to school where bullying is rampant and kids are getting beaten and cyberbullied and they're committing suicide. And then our media is just nothing but violence and drama. If you watch an American version of a show and a European version of the show, they are not the same show. They're wildly different. Uh, so what could America look like if in schools the Eightfold Path was taught? Maybe not strictly as the Eightfold Path, but these ideas were taught to be things to children. And what if, you know, at home during dinner, the family sat and they discussed 
what went on in your day? How could we have done this, you know, more wise, more enlightened? Uh, and what if our media portrayed this? What if our heroes in media weren't people who, you know, murdered droves of people in gunfights and gun chases, but they were people who came over tough issues with big eightfold path wins? In two generations, what kind of difference would we be looking at? Culturally, like, would, would it be much the same? Is the human experience what the human experience is, regardless of what the focus is? Um, or would we be in a place of much less suffering uh, and much better community? I certainly don't have that answer, but I would love to hear uh, what our viewers think about that. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. All right, anybody have anything else they want to throw in? All right, well, thank you for listening. I hope this was useful to everyone. Uh, we'll speak again, but for now, uh, blessed be. Blessed, blessed be. be.